Would you like to have a great answer to your child's question, Mom, why do I have to do math? <laughs> Our guest today, Marie Siobhan Gallagher, believes math is just plain good for you. <laughs> and after this episode, you'll be convinced too. Welcome to Homeschooling Saints, the podcast that helps you create the homeschool you love for the people you love. Our host is Lisa Maladnik, a Catholic life coach, TV host, best-selling author, and an instructor at Homeschool Connections. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Lisa Maladnik, and today's topic is math is just plain good for you. And our guest is Marie Siobhan Gallagher. Marie Siobhan is a homeschooling mom with a master's in education curriculum and instruction and is New York State certified in mathematics for grades 7 through 12. Marie Siobhan has taught students mathematics in Catholic schools, public schools, alternative schools, and home schools for over 30 years. She has coached Math Counts teams, presented at mathematics conferences, and was a regular contributor to Latin Mass magazine on mathematics in the homeschool from 2000 to 2005. Marie Siobhan Gallagher likes to cruise her sailboat with her husband and 10-year-old daughter, enjoys summer and winter in the mountains, and is trying to figure out what she wants to be when she grows up. <laughs> you can find Marie Siobhan by emailing her at mariesiobhangallagher at hotmail.com, and that's in our show notes for you. Uh, so don't worry about trying to jot that down just now. Welcome to the program, Marie Siobhan. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. We know each other from our homeschool network, but this is my first chance to really deep dive with you into your passion, which is teaching math and helping other people to really understand it and I think have more fun with it. So start us off by tackling the common mindset that when we do math, we have to do things a certain way, like it's this completely rigid system. Well, yeah, that is often what I see when uh, I'm introducing people that are sometimes struggling. As you mentioned, I'm a mathematics teacher for many years. I also tutor. So often when I encounter students and their parents trying to help them, uh, there seems to be, you know, um, a concern that uh, there has to be one way of doing it. And I'm here to say there's many ways of doing the same thing. There is one answer usually or that you want to get to. And so I'm certainly not excusing uh, anybody from, you know, uh, achieving that. But um, it does seem that one of the big obstacles that uh, can be an issue is that, uh, you know, sometimes a parent learns how to do something one way and then either in the book that they're using or another instructor or teacher is saying it must be done this other way. And so there's some conflict there sometimes and parents get frustrated and students uh, also sense their frustration and, and have difficulty. So I do want to just encourage people that Sometimes there really is more than one way to approach a problem and that if your child is uh, sometimes maybe struggling, you may realize that that child actually has his or her own way of approaching it, which may be a perfectly valid way of doing it. So to encourage the child, you know, divergent thinking it isn't wrong thinking just because maybe they're not thinking about a problem the way you might or the way the book may explain it there may be other ways of thinking about it and to encourage that because it uh, allows child freedom and more enjoyability. But of course, <laughs> it does have to be, you know, a valid, correct way of getting there. And that may be also where some parents wonder, you know, is this okay for my child to do it this way? 
or uh, must it be done? Now, of course, sometimes teachers will only give credit if it's done a certain way, or there might be instructions that say, you know, the answer must be given a certain way, like rounded to a certain decimal, or sometimes the child may do it a certain way, but the direction said to use a certain strategy, and so then that's what's actually being asked about or tested. So you do want to make sure the child knows it that way. For example, there's many ways to factor polynomials. So if the directions say you must do it by completing the square, then that's the skill that they're trying to find out if the child knows. But if the child uses a different method and gets the right answer, that is a correct answer as far as the answer of factoring, but it doesn't show the skill of completing the square. So that's just an example where a child, you know, should use the method that's being asked. Yeah, one of the things that we encountered is we took our daughter out of the public school after the fourth grade, and I was infuriated and talked to her math teachers, I mean, not her math teachers, at that time, one teacher taught all, but they marked a question wrong that she got on a math test because she didn't draw a picture of it. She got the number correct, but she didn't draw a picture. And it didn't actually say on the test, draw a picture. But that's how they were being taught in class. And so I wrote a note to the teacher. And, and, and unfortunately, when we encounter that in the school system, it teaches us to expect it to be a rigid system. Like there's only one way of doing things, which really limits our children's creativity, I think. It really does. That's very true. And unfortunately, it seems, you know, again, I don't know the teacher, but it seems like that teacher has sort of lost track of what the drawing of the picture was for, which I know in a lot of the Common Core um, approaches, they will ask students to draw pictures to help them understand the bigger concept. And uh, I, I can relate to what you're saying because I remember tutoring a seventh grade a seventh grade student who was trying to answer a simple multiplication problem and he started drawing all these pictures and I said, don't you know how to multiply those numbers? And he said, oh, sure, I know how to multiply these numbers, but the teacher wants the pictures. And I thought, well, what, a, what an unfortunate thing that this child had to sit there drawing all the, you know, arrays when he already knows and understands the concept. So I would... If you're a homeschooling parent and your child has understood a concept, I wouldn't make him keep doing the steps that help him to understand the concept unless he needs it. If later on you find out, you know, the child really didn't remember those facts, then maybe you'd say, hey, do you remember drawing those arrays and then have him do it again? But if the goal is to learn a higher concept, not draw pictures, then I, I would definitely agree that I would struggle with a teacher making my child draw pictures <laughs> when, when they understand it. Right, exactly. And what do you do with the kid, Marie Siobhan, who really has a hard time memorizing times tables, but you maybe you feel they're ready for a higher concept? How would you handle that? Yeah, that, that does happen a lot. A lot of times, you know, I, I will encounter a child who is ready to move on to a higher concept, but hasn't really mastered a lower skill, maybe, I don't want to say lower skill, but the skill of doing, you know, the step in order to get to the higher concept. Like, as you say, multiplication facts is a really big one. Absolutely, I would want the child to know his facts of multiplication, but there are times where ch children, for whatever reason, aren't remembering them. So one strategy I've used, you know, I would encourage parents to, you know, work with their child and uh, try to think of other ways to help him. And one, one example would be, uh, you know, maybe in the beginning of each week, have the child write out a multiplication table with all the facts filled in. And then he can use that for the week to when he's doing the higher level math, like if he's doing long division or 
some other process that needs that those multiplication, not to get bogged down in that he doesn't know his multiplication, but give him a tool like a multiplication table that maybe he created to help him move forward in the bigger concept because this frustration level of just sitting there multiple, you know, learning multiplication facts doesn't help when it comes to math anxiety. So anything you can do to help the child. Now, you know, in many cases, people will say, well, they're not allowed to use that, you know, on a test. But if he's created that table many times, then maybe he can create the table while he's making the test and then he'll have it even while he's doing the test. Maybe give him 10 minutes before he really start the test to make his own table for that. Which is absolutely brilliant because every week when that child recreates that table, they're reviewing their math facts. And also the fact that it's visual, it's the kinesthetic of creating the table and, you know, all, all the things that are going into that as far as that ongoing learning and the child's not held back. I feel like even just that flexibility of being able to incorporate that element in. So that, you know, bright kid who maybe just isn't the greatest at memorization is still getting to learn something and stay engaged. Right. And, and exactly as you say, you know, Flexibility is very important when it comes to math. Um, obviously, there are definitions and there are, you know, uh, fundamentals. And certainly we always want the, you know, like I've said before, the answer has to come out correct. But if you are flexible in something like that where, you know, you might say, well, I never was able to use that. Well, maybe that's true, but how frustrated might you have been? And really, what's the harm if the child creates the table himself? Then he's not, you know... Uh, worried about it while he's trying to do the other stuff. So exactly. there's no harm done, it really. It's a, and so anything that you can help your child with like that, and, you know, down the road, eventually they're going to use a calculator. But for now, you want him to learn the multiplication facts. But until he's really able to recall them, you know, right in the moment, then making a table is really a great idea to help him just move forward and remove that frustration. Yeah, I feel like children's anxiety goes down, too, if they're learning as they go how to make tools for themselves and really how to really just support their own growth and, you know, not be so helpless. How do you differentiate, too, like the kid who is really good with math concepts, but maybe not so detail-oriented and making a lot of little mistakes? Where do you, where do you come in on that? That's a really good question because I do often find myself, you know, explaining to families and children and they probably know this just by looking at what the child is doing, that there is a big difference between a computational issue and, and problem and a conceptual problem. So obviously when you're teaching a child a new concept and a bigger idea, uh, in order to get to the answer, the child often needs to do computational steps. But as long as the child is understanding the bigger concept and knows what those steps are, then you've mastered or you know learned how to battle a concept. Um, but very often we do find that because their computation isn't as accurate as we'd like it to be, they end up with <laughs> an incorrect answer. Right. So um, yes. And so I would say then that person would need some drill. You know, drill isn't a bad thing. If, if you're uh, focused on something, you know, if the child keeps getting multiplication with many decimals wrong, maybe they're finding the decimal place in the wrong place, or they're not aligning the correct uh, units and there could be many reasons why the computation is not coming out. And I would just focus on that uh, for a few problems before going back to the greater conceptual uh, question. Do you have a particular place where you like to pull drills from? Sure. Uh, with my own daughter, I use Kumon workbooks a lot. 
which I know, you know a lot of people love them. Some people aren't very fan of that kind of drill, but I do find that it helps her a lot when it comes to uh, word problems because she has the confidence to uh, approach the word problem because she knows that doing the actual computation isn't going to be the challenge. The challenge is going to be in figuring out what to do. So I use Kumon. Uh, there's also, uh, there are Kumon centers as well. You can physically go in, well, at least you used to be able to, uh, <laughs> and get instruction. You know, Huntington Learning Centers are around. You know, you can uh, find lots of drills on the internet. There's extramath.com is a place that you can have drills that are timed and uh, the child gets feedback right away. Um, certainly a lot of people know about Khan Academy, K-H-A-N, Khan Academy, which is a free resource of uh, all different kinds of topics and many different subjects, but they do have mathematics as well. And I have friends who actually use that entirely as their entire curriculum because you can keep track of what you're doing and what your progress is. They have explanatory videos that are nice and short and understandable. And then you can proceed at your own pace, which is also a nice thing. There's no pressure to stick, you know, stick with the whole class or do it at the pace everybody else's. Some people go way faster. Some people need a little more time. And so something like Khan Academy is nice in terms of being able to track your progress and uh, see how you're doing. Yeah, what's a way to frame the drilling? In other words, we can, our kids can be a little embarrassed that, oh, no, I have to go back and drill my, my multiplication or my long division again or whatever it is or carrying factors or I'm probably saying everything wrong. Please forgive <laughs> me. I'm not okay. yep. Those are all, yep. <laughs> at any rate, whatever it is that they're doing. But like, how do you approach it? Do you do a drilling in a, in a long session or do you space it out? How, what would be a great strategy for like keeping the pressure low but keeping them learning? This is really important that the, the pressure is low, right? If you And so if you do a little bit every day, you know, as your child moves through his lessons, you'll see little areas that always need a little bit of help, a little tweaking, you know, uh, he's always getting that long division problem wrong. Let's do two long division, you know, every other day for 10 days or until you see improvement. Um, but if you always, a lot of times it's a good idea to just start every lesson with, two, three, five computational problems that get the child warmed up, don't really involve a lot of problem solving. They're just direct drill. But if you do it every day, a little bit every day, just like anything else, you know, exercise. If you do a little bit every day, you'll see some progress. So with computation, uh, if you're seeing mistakes being made throughout the lesson, then you want to just pull a few of those. And a lot of times, you know, books will have review at the end of the chapter or at the end of the lesson, or they'll have, you know, one day you could do even ones, and then another day do odd ones. What I would not recommend, though, and you did mention, and, uh, you know, thank you for asking, I wouldn't do long, long drills of this <laughs> where it's a half an hour of just long division. Who wants to do that? I mean, even, and I would even say this, even, and we're talking about flexibility, even if the book you're using, and that's the lesson, is 45 minutes of long division, I mean, that's a really shortcut to really turning off your child doing math. And so even a lesson like that that's presented, I would split that up. So I would never have a child just sit there and do 45 minutes of that. I would maybe say, we're going to do five of these today and five tomorrow and so on. But then start the next lesson or go to jump to some other part of the book and do some geometry also. You can do more than one thing, you know, and especially if the child knows there's a limit to this long division because next I get to 
you know, do a graph and plot points on a table of values and things like, you know, that are a little more fun. So I do recommend, again, with that flexibility, don't just go in the order if, you know, the book is really boring and dry, jump around a little bit. Because even though math is built on a, a previous skill, not all of it is. So geometry, for example, is a good way to jump in, you know, and do something with shapes or area, uh, volume, while you're also learning that skill of long division. So my daughter, we do maybe two or three long division. She's not a fan of long division. Who, you know, who's, who's a fan? Find me a person, a fan of long division. But <laughs> no, it's a, really. You know, it's a great skill to have, and it's a very good math skill and discipline for her mind. But I would never, you know, stick to that for a long time. Yeah, one of the things that I have always said to my daughter when it came to mastering fundamentals like that is that if you watch very high level like Olympic skaters, when they're warming up, before they start to do any jumps, they start with their school figures. They start with the stuff they learned when they were five. And that's just go, creating those shapes so that they have a strong foundation for the upper level work. And so just doing a few little foundational skills on a regular basis, you can just remind them that top athletes review their basic skills or top violinists or pianists or whoever it is, that those basic skills underlie the more complex things. And so that they shouldn't, like some kids just have a real competitive thing with other kids or, or with their siblings and they don't want to seem to be going backward. So showing them that they have to be anchored in fundamentals can be a little freeing for them. Absolutely true. And I, I really like the, uh, athlete analogy, you know, a basketball player will sometimes, you know, shoot a hundred free throws before he leaves the basketball court after every practice. Well, free throws are a very elementary uh, shot that, you know, everybody must do, but it's very, you know, in the game when you have to take free throw and you want to make that shot, it's a free shot. So it's important to use those drills and fundamentals, even in math, just to warm up before you move on to something bigger. So if you do it every day, a little bit every day, then the child won't see it as unusual or, you know, a penalty or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Anything else around just kind of staying flexible? You mentioned the possibility of in the same day, looking at maybe two or three different parts of the math curriculum. Like explain to us because that may feel intuitive to you because you're, you have such a grasp of how it all interconnects. Could you give us a little bit of a framework for how to do that well? Yeah. You know, I mean, just for me, when I used my daughter's, the main portion of my daughter's book, and I, th I think I may have mentioned this, but if I haven't, I do encourage people to use more than one source for whatever curriculum they're using. Um, you know, don't just limit yourself to one book and one source. But in the meantime, uh, even if you have a book, you know, that has several different chapters and you're starting in the beginning and you think, we're just going to go straight through this book, that, that may work. That could be fine. But if you are finding a little bit of uh, pushback from the child because it's just a lengthy lesson in the same old thing, I do recommend breaking them down into smaller lessons. So you may say, well, there's, you know, five major topics in this book say, for example. So we'll start a little bit in the first one, first topic. We'll take a little bit from the second topic, the third, the fourth. And maybe you'll have at least three or four different kinds of questions that the child is seeing every day. So you're just going to different sections of the book where they might start a new topic. So it really doesn't necessarily rely on a previous skill um, other than maybe multiplication. But again, if you are seeing some struggle with multiplication, if the child sees it in the context of a different topic like 
uh, algebra or like geometry. Sometimes geometry is a great place to start because when you do geometry and you have to find area or volume, you end up multiplying numbers. So there's a purpose and a reason for it. The child will find value in you know, maybe learning how to do that, spend a little more time on learning how to do that if they're struggling with the computational aspect of it. So I do, you know, it's really pretty simple to just look in different sections of the book and find, okay, where does a new concept start here? Let's do some problems from there and maybe do half of each as you go for, forward in your daily lessons. Uh, and each day pick, you know, half of this and half of this or a third of this, a third of this, a third of that. Um, so the child, again, knows mentally, okay, there's a limit to this. <laughs> like, if I don't like this one thing, I know that there's another one because usually mom picks some other stuff for me to do too. And I guess here we're talking about if you're homeschooling, you know, which I know this is our focus uh, audience. So if you are homeschooling, don't feel like you have to just do one lesson a day in the order that they're presented because sometimes that just uh, doesn't work for the child. So you have to try to find ways that work for your child and you know your child and what the you know, style of his learning is. And if he's, you know, maybe your child will do 45 minutes of long division. Um, that's not typically the case though. So feel free to look around and find other subjects or topics in your book that the child can start learning. And I know morning light, you know, brightens up whenever I show her a chart or a graph or some geometry. So it's easy to move forward, you know, for that. So maybe she's a little visual and she likes to see what the numbers make. Yes. And, you know, there are many different kinds of curriculum out there uh, that some of them do require, you know, actual hands-on manipulative things. A lot of child, children really like that. And uh, some really, really very much need it. Um, others, you know, you can kind of show them on paper and they're ready to move forward from there. And, uh, you know, there's no one way is better than the other. You have to look and see your child, what, how they like to learn and try to find uh, a method that works for them. You know, sometimes parents will ask their friends, you know, what's the best math program? And they're really the best math, math program would be the one that works the best for your child. So while it's certainly a good idea, and I ask all the time, you know, for references and recommendations and reviews from friends, uh, just know that, you know, what may work well for your child's uh, daughter or son may not be the best one for your child or son. So try to be aware. There's many different kinds out there. There's Matthew C with manipulatives. There's teaching textbooks, which presents information a certain way that's uh, not really overwhelming and does have a diverse group of types of questions. And that's a video program, is that correct? Are, that's as far as I know, yeah. There's videos in there and then a workbook program. So that's visual. But again, you know, you can, there's many different, you know, Saxon, there's uh, some people just use Kumon, some people just use Khan Academy. Um, I know Seton has their own math program, you know, that people like. So there's lots of different things that people use. Uh, Life of Fred comes to mind, like yeah. whole stories about math. That was... <laughs> Life of Fred it is really fun. Uh, I know my daughter <laughs> loves reading those, and I know a lot of people use them. I probably would say I'd add to that and supplement that with other things because the amount of practice that comes with that it is pretty limited. So in my opinion, most students need more than that, but that's not to say I know many people who use that exclusively um, and, it, and it's a lot of fun. The child loves it. I feel like there's maybe more other stuff that they might want to do with that though. It, it, like, so if it, 
a person is considering that as a standalone curriculum, I would probably recommend adding more, uh, maybe just practice drill to it. But again, I, you know, that you have to see what your child is willing to do and able to do. And uh, for some children, that is sufficient and they, they're happy to just learn that way too. Exactly, exactly. Oh, great. So there's lots of different resources. You mentioned Khan Academy, which gives instant feedback, extramath.com, also feedback, not so overwhelming, the Kumon work uh, books, teaching textbooks, the Matthew C with the, and that's math and the letter U and then S-E-E that has manipulatives that your child can actually handle. Also heard of Singapore math, but never looked at it. What child would that one appeal to? I actually use Singapore math, but a child who doesn't probably require a lot of visual manipulatives, uh, but they do have a lot of practice in that book. So uh, I, you know, it can be valuable for that. There's a lot of good variety to their topics. So I, I actually use Singapore, but I also use a book called, Mathematics for the Gifted Child, which is a workbook, and uh, it has a lot of divergent thinking within, and so the child is not necessarily challenged to be at a higher level of math than he is or she is, but rather to use the level that she is to think of divergent problems, and so that's one of the things I like with my daughter. So she's not expected to learn advanced math necessarily. It just uses what she does already know on level to help her uh, think in lots of different manners, uh, puzzles and uh, not just puzzles, but, you know, logic questions, uh, graphs and charts and fun that, things. Yeah, it does sound fun. Yeah, actually kind of r reminds me also to just encourage people. Sometimes people will form a math club, even if their child is not, you know, super excited about math, but this sometimes has a better effect um, on the child because especially given that there's no pressure, there's no grades, there's no, you know, you don't have to hand work in. You're just presented with interesting or divergent mathematics questions. And so they're done for fun. And really, children do have fun when they do them, especially, again, knowing there's no pressure. Um, and some kids, you know, zip through them very quickly. Other children, you know, need more time, and but they find it a lot of fun. And they end up, especially if you're in a club or have just a team or something, they end up talking to each other about it. And, and they, uh, it's so beneficial to the person explaining something or the person listening. They're speaking at each other's level. They're using the vocabulary of mathematics to explain things. And then a lot of times they'll learn a new concept that, you know, didn't require a full lesson. They just picked it up right away because their teammate told them how to do it. And so those are a lot of fun. Uh, you can do it at a competitive level where you actually compete at a state level. And I've coached teams like that. But you can also just do it as a fun club, get together with some friends. Uh, the source I use the most often is mathcounts.org, where uh, those questions are made by, you know, engineering, science uh, people who try to work again at the child's level, but give them questions that make them think about the definitions of things. They have to use just their knowledge and think through questions that are not usually what they would see just in their studies, but they're using the knowledge that they learned in their studies to apply to these other questions that are very doable. So they're not impossible. The child's not frustrated. Uh, they have a lot of fun with that. So, you know, sometimes that may be a way that you would get a little enthusiasm, you know, with your children if they get to meet on a Friday for 10 weeks with some of their friends 
and do some of these questions. Yeah, and I love the social side of that, the social side of it. Plus, I know that you mentioned when you were coaching your Math Counts teams, you had one team that did well in competition, and you mentioned that you had some volunteers in the classroom as well. Tell us a little bit about that. That's right. Uh, so this one school that I was teaching at and I decided to start the Math Counts team, I put in the bulletin uh, for any volunteers who were in any kind of science background. And these two retired engineers came forward and they were wonderful. They were older men. Uh, they would show up each week. The children, you know, loved working with them. They, were, they would explain things in their own way. One was a civil engineer, used to build bridges all over New York State. Uh, the other was an electrical engineer. So they brought knowledge that, you know, I was one person in the classroom and I was very impressed. I had about 30 kids show up to this club that I started. And, you know, the, they were just there for kind of the social. We, you know, we had brownies and soda, um, but also the, you know, these fellows came in. And, yeah. Oh yeah. That, that was a big draw actually. Once the, once the word got out that we had brownies and soda, I had to see more people join, but, but that Math was okay. achievement in the state sword. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. But the, these men came to our competitions dressed, you know, in a jacket and tie, and they brought a lot of, you know, importance to what they were doing. They helped us uh, design golf courses and then we made them out of paper mache we really oh had a lot gosh. of fun yeah it was it was super fun um so <laughs> definitely the idea of bringing in other people uh experienced people people who are willing to you know spend their time with kids if, if you can especially if you had like a team so these men really saw the value of coming in each week because they they were interacting with you know like really about 30 kids so it helped me so much because i couldn't be there to answer every single person's question the whole time so it was like I had help, you know, there and the kids loved it. And it was just, it was really fun. Everybody really enjoyed it. Let's touch a little more on that. For the sake of every homeschool parent, but especially those who are new to homeschooling, talk a little bit about asking for help, just generally. You know, I can't stress enough. If, <laughs> if you're new to homeschooling, it is overwhelming in many cases, but I really encourage you you know, to know you, you can do it, but sometimes you need to ask for help. And especially math and science can be one area that often people feel overwhelmed with. So there's those resources out there. Um, I know homeschool connections can be a great way to, you know, have an online person helping. And um, you can use a college student who might need to pick up a few bucks or someone in your family that knows. Uh, you can hire a tutor, um, you know, even just someone who has done the math and, you know, is willing to help somebody. You can hire Marie Siobhan. <laughs> me, yes. Well, it is, it is a big part of what I did for most of the 2000s um, was tutor people. And actually, uh, you know, not to get too personal, but I met my husband through a oh. family that I was tutoring. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I was tutoring their children. And uh, through them, I met you know, my husband. So that was great. That was a wonderful aspect of tutoring <laughs> for me. So... But, you know, each child is, uh, I have to say, as a teacher, one of the biggest things I learned as a teacher was that uh, there are many ways to do mathematics. And each child brings a different point of view in how to do certain things. So to be open to that, that is often the case. So if you're, if you're thinking, wow, he's doing something I never did, you know, it, it may be the case, but he also just may be seeing it a different way, which is good thing usually I would encourage a child to use his own you know, that is one of the nice things about homeschooling um, 
maybe it can be a frustrating thing too, but that, you know, you maybe feel like you don't have the support, but if the child is working it through and doing it in his own way, that is a great thing for his mind to think it through using the definitions, learning it on his own and, um, you know, taking his path towards it. So, so don't discourage that. But if you're feeling overwhelmed and you're wondering, is this okay? You know, it certainly doesn't hurt to ask another person. And Marie Siobhan, take us out with just one or two ways that math is just good for us. Yeah, math is good for us. Um, certainly, you know, we see it in our daily lives when we're you know, at the store and trying to figure out a discount and things like that. But I also have to say, in many cases, mathematics that we learn, we don't use every day. I'm not usually calculating the area constantly or, you know, factoring <laughs> polynomials. I'm not sure when's the last time I looked at my calculus in my daily life. But I'm very glad that I did go through the discipline of learning how to do the math and learning it as a language and with its own definitions and symbols and the reasoning that goes into using math, especially when you get to the higher levels. Um, it may not always be practical to daily life, but the discipline that a person will learn through being able to think through using specific set of definitions, tools, uh, fundamental things to go to a higher level of thinking, I think is invaluable. And I think mathematics is a great way to do it. And definitely in this day and age, mathematics can open the door to a lot of opportunity. So I would encourage families to give their children every opportunity to learn mathematics and higher level mathematics as well, because just then their options are much greater in front of them. Yeah, excellent. Thank you so much, Marie Siobhan. This has been a lot of fun. Like, you don't expect to have so much fun talking about math just because there's this well, I do. crazy, I mean, you do, but like a lot of us have math anxiety and we don't have time to really delve deeply into that. But having the mindset that there is some flexibility, that it's good for their brains to have the struggle and to work things through and to learn to think at a higher level, to practice foundational skills, to have the discipline to just keep revisiting it in a low pressure way. Maybe we can check our own you know, maybe negative mindsets at the door and just try to be really positive with our kids because this can be a great adventure of the mind, can't it? I agree. Absolutely. Um, it, you know, if you do have math anxiety, that's so understandable. Um, try not to, I, you know, I would suggest uh, try not to say too much of that around your children um, because that will sometimes uh, add to their anxiety. So um, as you say, flexibility, uh, desire to move forward, you know, in the, in the way that the child can, um, and just encouragement and, uh, don't get discouraged because there is help and there's many resources online, many resources in person. Uh, you're not alone. You can do it. It can be challenging, but it's worth it in the end, in my opinion. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Marie Siobhan. And everybody, her email address, Marie Siobhan Gallagher at hotmail.com is in the show notes, as well as the names of a whole bunch of resources that we mentioned. So please don't worry if you were driving or walking the dog listening to this and didn't have a chance to take any notes, we took them for you. And uh, make sure that you circle back to Marie Siobhan too, if you'd like to continue this conversation or want to know more about helping your child with their unique uh, issues. And everybody, please stay tuned for our short feature coming right up.
Hello, my homeschooling friend. I'm Celeste Behe, and this is the Homeschool Housefly, named after Frankie, the fly on the wall who's been eavesdropping on our homeschool for these past 30 years. One reason that Frankie hangs out here is that he likes our homeschool snacks. Are snack breaks a part of your homeschool day? They are at our house. We never fail to have our snack breaks at 10.45 a.m. and at 3.30 p.m., no matter how chaotic the school day might be. Back when I was homeschooling a houseful instead of only one, having scheduled snack breaks accomplished two things. One, it gave my kids something to look forward to. And two, it kept them from asking for snacks throughout the day. Our morning snack was grabbed on the fly. Uh, No offense, Frankie. But afternoon snack time was a ritual. First, there was recitation of the Divine Mercy Chaplet at 3 o'clock. Afterwards, the kids would gather at the table where my daughter Claire would grill them on states and capitals using a set of flashcards. That quiz session would always be followed by hot cocoa all around. Can I tell you? My adult kids still talk about how much they enjoyed those quiz and cocoa breaks. And by the way, they are whizzes at states and capitals. That daily drill really paid off. Our morning snack always followed outdoor recess, and the snack itself varied from day to day. Some of our favorites were cocoa-dusted almonds, banana spread with peanut butter, apples with chocolate hummus, pretzels with honey mustard, and graham crackers with apple butter. Mmm. Now, when it comes to school day snacks, like any other aspect of homeschooling, organization matters. If your children are little, you can spend a few minutes over the weekend portioning out and bagging dry snack foods like trail mix and granola to create grab-and-go snacks for especially busy school days. If your kids are older and have good judgment, you can designate pantry space for snacks and let the kids serve themselves. And if you're the mother of a college grad, you can use that old dorm room mini-fridge that's in the basement for the storage of snack foods that require refrigeration. Whenever, wherever, or however your homeschooling family does its snacking, a little planning will help make snack time a pleasant part of your school day. Oh, and uh, Frankie says to please save him some crumbs. I'm Celeste Behe, and this has been the Homeschool Housefly. That's our show for today. Our program is sponsored by homeschoolconnections.com, where you can get online courses for your grade school, middle school, and high school student. Learn from the experts and make your homeschooling easier. Be sure to leave a review and share this podcast with your friends. And we'll see you next time here on the Homeschooling Saints podcast.